This is Black Wall Street Chronicles. This is your host, Jeffrey Frazier, and we are back at it again. Yeah, um, before we get started, we need to uh, talk about a couple of things. First, um, I need you to follow me on Instagram. Um, my Instagram is uh, BlackCoggy840. Um, again, my Instagram is BlackCoggy840. Also, if you go to my Instagram, you go to my bios. It has my Facebook page, has my Facebook uh, page, my Twitter page, and my Twitch page. Also, um, if you are interested in co-hosting, you can hit me up on my email address, uh, jeffreyfraser55 at gmail.com. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. F-R-A-Z-I-E-R 55 at gmail.com Also, if you are looking to uh, promote for me to endorse one of your businesses or any of your shows, you should also hit me on that email address too. Now, this week is a very important episode. Um, Currently, we have a new candidate that's trying to overthrow President Trump in the election of 2020, Uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg is uh, going through some controversy because of his practices in New York City as a mayor. Mm. His, uh, mainly his stop and frisk program. But as somebody who is a descendant of Black Wall Street who was born and raised in New York City. There's other things we need to talk about about Mayor Michael Bloomberg. So what is stop and frisk? Those who don't know. So I'm going to read on wikipedia.com and it'll basically explain what stop and frisk policy really was. The stop and stop question and fist program or stop and frisk in New York City is a New York City Police Department practice of temporary detaining, questioning, and at times searching civilians as suspects on the streets for weapons and other contraband. This is what's known in other places in the United States as the Terry Stop. The rules for stop, question, and fricks are bound in the state's criminal procedure law, section 140.50, and they are based on the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Terry v. Ohio. In 2016, 12,404 stops were made. The stop and frisk program has previously taken place on a much wider scale. Between 2003 and 2013, over 100,000 stops were made per year, with 685,724 people being stopped at the height of the program in 2011. The program became the subject of a racial profiling controversy. The mass majority, 90% in 2017, of those stops were African-American or Latino, most of whom were aged 14 to 24. Furthermore, 70% of all those stops were later to be found innocent. By contrast, 54.1% of the population of New York City in 2010 was African-American or Latino. However, 7 
4.4% of the individuals arrested overall were of those two racial groups. In February 2020, comments defending stop and frisk made by former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, in 2015 resurfaced and drew criticism. Let's look at the legal background of stop and frisk. Okay. In the year 2002, there was nine these 7,296 people who were stopped and frisked. In 2003, there was 160,851 people who were stopped and frisked. In 2004, there was 313,523 who were stopped and frisked. In 2005, 398,191 were stopped and frisked. In 2006, 506,491 people were stopped and frisked. In 2007, 472,096 people were stopped and frisked. In 2008, 540,302 people were stopped and frisked. 209 and uh, 2009, 581,168 people were stopped and frisked. In 2010, 601,285 people were stopped and frisked. In 2011, 685,724 people were stopped and frisked. In 2012, 532,911 people were stopped and frisked. In 2013, 191,851 people were stopped and frisked. In 2014, 45,787 people were stopped and frisked. In 2015, 22,565 people were stopped and frisked. In 2016, 12,404 people were stopped and frisked. And in 2017, 10,861 people were stopped and frisked. Yeah, so in, let's see, in the 15 years that the stop and frisk program was intimate, implemented, it seems that we have a total of over 1 million people who were stopped and frisked in that 15-year time span. Mm. Not good. Not good at all. The United States Supreme Court made an important ruling on the use of stop and frisk in the 1968 case Terry versus Ohio, hence why the stops are also referred to as the Terry stops. While the frisks were arguably legal until then, a police officer could not search only someone who had been arrested unless a search warrant had been obtained. In the cases of Terry v. Ohio, Syrian v. New York, and Peters v. New York, the Supreme Court granted limited approval in 1968 to the frisk conducted by officers lacking probable cause for arrest in order to search for weapons if the officer believes that the subject to be dangerous. The court's decision made suspicion of danger to officer grounds for a reasonable search. In the early 1980s, if a police officer had reasonable suspicion of a possible crime, he or she had the authority to stop someone and ask questions. If based on the subject answers, the suspicion level did not escalate to probable cause for an arrest. The person who would 
be released immediately. That was only a stop in question. The first part of the equation did not come into play except on two cases. If the possession of a weapon was suspected or reasonable suspicion of a possible crime escalated to the probable cause to arrest for an actual crime based on facts developed after the initial stop in question. That all changed in the 1990s when Comstat was delivered under the police commissioner, William Bratton. High-ranking police officials widely incorporated the stop in question and frisk. The use of stop and frisk is often associated with the broken windows policing. According to the broken windows theory, low-level crime and disorder creates an environment that occurs more serious crimes. Among the key proponents of the theory is Giles L. Keeling and William Bratton, who was the chief of New York City Transit Police from 1990 to 1992 and the commissioner of the New York City Police Department from 1994 to 1996. Mayor Rudolph Giuliani hired Bratton for the latter job and endorsed broken windows policing. Giuliani and Bratton proceeded over an expansion of the New York Police Department and a crackdown of low-level crimes including failed invasion, public drinking, public urination, graffiti artists, and squeegee men who have been wiping windshields of stop cars and aggressively demanding payment. Bratton and Kelly argue that stop and frisk has been rolling conflated with broken windows policing. They argue that stop and frisk is a short-term tactic for preventing a potential crime, whereas broken windows policing is a long-term tactic that requires the police to engage with the communities. Broken windows policing. That's interesting. In 2002, there was 900, uh, there was 97,296 stop and frisk stops made by New York police officers. 82.4% resulted in no fines or convictions. The numbers of stop increased dramatically in 2008 to over a half of million. 88% of which did not result in any fine or conviction, peaking in 2011 to 685,724 stops, again with 88% resulting in no conviction. The average from 2002 to 2013, the number of the individual stop without any convictions was 87.6%. Part of the stop and frisk program is executed under Operation Clean Halls, a program in which private property owners grant officers prior permission to enter a property for enforcement against criminal activity. Some NYPD officers had objected publicly to the department's use of stop, question, and fix paperwork as a performance metric which they claim encourages officers to overuse the practices and creates public hostility. Activists have accused the NYPD of encouraging stops through quotas, which department representatives have denied. In the vast majorities of cases, no evidence of wrongdoing is found, and the stop person is let go. Controversy regarding misuse and claims of racial profiling. Let's see. New York police officer Adrian Schoolcraft made extensive recordings in 2008 and 2009, which document orders from NYPD officials to search and arrest black people in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood. The Schoolcraft, which bore accusations 
of misconduct to NYPD investigators, was transferred to a desk job and then involuntary committed to a psychiatric hospital. In 2010, Schoolcraft sent the tapes to the Village Voice, which publicized them in a series of reports. Schoolcraft alleges that the NYPD has retaliated against them for exposing information about the stop-and-frisk policy. The New York City Liberties Union, Latino Justice PLDEF, and the Bronx Defenders filed a federal class action lawsuit against the program. Hmm. In the response to the allegations that the program unfairly targets African-Americans and Hispanic-American individuals, then-Mayor Michael Bloomberg has stated that it's because African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans are more likely to be violent criminals and victims of violent crime. On June 17, 2012, 7,000 people marched soundly down Manhattan's Fifth Avenue from Lower Harlem to Bloomberg's Upper East Side townhouse in the protest of the stop, question, and fix policy. The mayor refused to end the program, contending that the program reduces crime and saves lives. In early 2012, the Stop, Question, and Fix protesters who videotape police stops in New York City were targeted by police for their activism. A Wonder-style poster hung in police precinct headquarters without any allegation of criminal activity aroused one couple of being professional agitators whose purpose is to portray officers in a negative way too. Deter officers from conducting their responsibilities. Police officers later surveilled and recorded the exits of persons from a stop and frisk meeting held at the couple's residence, allegedly in response to emergency call of loitering and trespass. In October 2012, the nation published an obscenity-filled audio recording that revealed two NYPD officers conducted a hostile and racially profiled stop-and-frisk of an innocent teenager from Harlem. Following its uphold, the recording soon turned viral as it triggered outrage and set, shed unprecedented light on the practice of stop-and-frisk. In 2013, in an interview with WOR Radio, Michael Bloomberg responded to claims that the program disproportionately targeted minorities. Bloomberg argued that the data should be assessed based on the murder subsets descriptions and not the population as a whole. Bloomberg explained. One newspaper on one news service, they just keep saying, oh, it's disproportionately percentage on a particular ethnic group. They may be, but it's not in disproportionate percentage of disproportionate. Oh, God, what's wrong with my pronunciation? Excuse me. That may be, but it's not a disproportionate percentage of those victims and victims described as committing the crime. In the case, incidentally, incidentally, no, oh God, incidentally, I think we disproportionately stop rights too much and minorities too little. What? He said, in that case, incidentally, I think disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. The hell's this guy talking about? In February 2020, 
an audio recording surface of Michael Bloomberg defending the program at a February 2015 Aspic Institute event. In a speech, Bloomberg said 95% of murders, murders and murders, victims fit one M.O. You can't just take the description, Xerox it and pass it to all the cops. They're all male minorities, 16 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in every city. And that's where the real crime is. You got to get the guns out of the hands of people who are getting killed. So you spend the money on a lot of cops in the streets. Put the cops where the crime is, which means in minority neighborhoods. So one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh, my God, you're arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put the cops in minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And if and the way you get the guns out of the kids hands is to throw them up against the wall and frisk them. And then they start. Oh, I don't want to get caught. So they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it home. Huh. Okay. That's a lot to unwrap there. You know, this may be just common sense, but not all crimes happen in minority neighborhoods. Crimes happen in white neighborhoods just as much as minority neighborhoods. So I don't know what this guy's talking about. And he wants to be the president of the United States. Yeah. Next week, I'm going to talk about the corruption in New York City. Uh, I think it's a high time. Class action lawsuit brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights. In Floyd v. City of New York, decided on August 12, 2013, the U.S. District Court Judge Shinra Shinnedin ruled that the stop and frisk has been used as in an unconstitutional manner and directed the police to adopt a written policy to specifically where such stops are authorized. Shinden appointed Peter Zimmeroff, a former chief lawyer for the city of New York, to oversee the program. Mayor Bloomberg indicated that the city would appeal the ruling. Shilladen had denied pleas for a stay in her overthrow of the poli- police and policy, saying that ordering a stay now would send precisely the wrong signal. It would essentially confirm that the, the past practices were justified and based on constitutional police practices. It would also send a message that reducing the number of stops is somehow dangerous to the residents of this city. On October 31st, 2013, the United States of Court of Appeals for the Second Circus blocked the order requiring changes to the New York Police Department's stop and frisk program and removed Judge Shinra Shinalin from the case. On November 9, 2013, the city asked a federal appeals court to vacate Shindelin's orders. On November 22, 2013, the federal appellate court rejected the city's motion for a stay of the judge orders. On July 30, 2014, Southern District Court Judge Anasia Torres denied the police union's motions to intervene and granted the proposed modification of the district court August 2013 remedial decision. 
A week later, the city of New York filed the motion to withdraw its appeal. On August 13, 2014, the Second Circuit announced the cases would be argued on October 15, 2014. On October 31st, a three-judge panel on the Second Circuit unanimously, unanimously ruled against the unions and allowed the city to proceed with its overhaul of the police department. Settlement of lawsuits and political ramifications. A record 685,724 stops were made under the program in 2011. However, the number of stops made has been reduced in every year since then. A major turning point was the 2013 court case Floyd versus City of New York and a subsequent NYPD mandate that requires officers to thoroughly justify the reason for making a stop. In 2013, 191,558 stops was made. Stop and frisk was an issue in the 2013 mayor election. The race to the seat Bloomberg was won by Democratic Party candidate Bill de Blasio, who has pledged to reform stop and frisk program called for the new leadership at the NYPD, an inspector general, and a strong racial profiling bill. The number of stops can continue to decrease over the next two years. In August 2014, Newsweek reported that the stop and frisk numbers were down. They still happen disproportionately in New York City's African-American and Latino neighborhoods. In 2015, only 22,565 stops were made. Class action lawsuit brought by the Bronx Defenders. On September 5th, 2019, a New York judge granted class action status to a case brought by the Bronx Defenders on behalf of individuals affected by stop and frisk. The lawyers attest the records of individuals who underwent stop and frisk were retained by police. Despite the law requiring those records to be sealed, the arrestees had cases which were downgraded to non-criminal statuses, dropped and declined by prosecutors, or thrown out of court. Despite this, appearance and residential addresses remained in law enforcement databases. These records were used to increase the charges of the individuals later arrested for unrelated crimes and also continue to be used by the NYPD facial requisition database to track down suspects. The policies of stop and frisk. Opponents of the program had complained that its racist failed to reduce robbery, burglary or other crime. The Manhattan Borough President, current New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer, argued that the program constitutes harassments of blacks and Latinos because it is disproportionately directed at them. The NYC Bar Association cast doubt on whether police were applying to the reasonable suspicion rule when making the stops. The sheer volume of stops that result in no determination of wrongdoing raised the question of whether police officers are constantly adhering to the constitutional requirement for reasonable suspicion for stop and frisk. In a January 2018 OPED 
in the National Review, conservative writer Kyle Smith said that the steep decline in New York City's crime rate since the reduction in the use of stop and frisk has shown him that he was wrong about stop and frisk. Smith had earlier argued that reducing stop and frisk will increase the crime rate. Support. Paul J. Brown, an NYPD spokesman, defended the practice saying stop save lives, especially communities disproportionately affected by crime and especially of young men of color who last year represented 90 percent of the murder victims and 96 percent of the shooting victims in New York City. Then Mayor Michael Bloomberg defended the aspect of stopping young front men and Hispanic men at the rates that do not reflect the city's overall census numbers, saying that the proportion of stops generally reflects our crime numbers does not mean, as the judge wrongly concluded, that the police engage in racial profiling. It means they are stopped people in those communities who fit descriptions of suspects who are engaged a specific uh, suspicious activity. Heather MacDonald denied that blacks are being stopped too often and claimed the opposite. The actual crime rate reveals that blacks are being significantly understopped compared with their representation in the city's criminal population. The NYC police commissioner Raymond Kelly wrote, the statistics reinforce that what crime numbers have shown for decades, that blacks in the city were disproportionately the victims of violent crime, followed by Hispanics. Their assailants were disproportionately black and Hispanic, too. Stop and frisk became an issue in the 2016 presidential election, with Donald Trump attributing a non-existent increase in the murders to New York to reduction of stop and frisk. Mm. Yeah, Donald Trump is actually was lying. Advocates for a small scale program. Bratton and Kellen both argue that stop and frisk is a resource tool that must be used in moderation. In a joint article in late 2014, they wrote that a Terry stop is one of the key means to deflect, detect and prevent crimes in process and an important tool in street policing. While also supporting efforts to reduce its use, Bratton agreed it's causing tension with ethnic communities and that was less needed in the era of lower crime. Interesting. So Bratton and Kellen believes that it should be used in moderation and it should not be overused in the era of New York City when we have lower crime. I think is I disagree. It shouldn't even be used at all, but it's interesting. Let's see. A 2012 study finds that few effects of stop and frisk on robbery and burglary rates in New York between 2003 and 2010. According to the Washington Post fact checker, the claim that stop and frisk contributed to a decline in crime rate is unsubstained. In 2016, study found no evidence that stop and frisk was effective, 
One of the authors of the study, Jeffrey Fagan of Columbia University, said that you can achieve really very positive crime control reductions in crime if you do not stop using the probable cause standards. If you leave it up to officers based on their hunches, they then they have almost no effect on crime. Fagan found stops based on probable cause standards of criminal behavior were associated with a five nine percent five to nine percent decline in New York City crime in census block groups. Another 2016 study found that stop and frisk lowered crime and that the side of the effect was significant yet modest. The offers also noted that the level of SQFs was needed to produce medium crime reduction are a cost in terms of police time and are potentially harmful to police legitimacy. In 2017, study also reported that stop and frisk was associated with modest crime reductions and caused and cautioned against drawing strong casual conclusions. A 2017 study in the Journal of Politics found that the introduction of a mandate in 2013 that officers provide thorough justifications for for stopping suspects led to far fewer stops, far fewer detainments of innocent people, and increased the ratio of stops that ultimately produce evidence of a crime that the police stopped the suspect for. Okay. So it says here that... If you stop somebody, and this should be common sense, if you stop somebody for no reason at all, there's a high possibility you're not going to catch somebody. But if you stop somebody and you're doing it for probable cause, you have a higher chance to prevent a crime. Personally, again, I think stop and frisk shouldn't even be allowed, but this is interesting. Economy. One study controlling for res. Relevant factors finds that properties exposed to more intense stop and frisk activity sold for a significantly lower price. So another reason why they wanted to end stop and frisk because too much police activity causes the property value of the house to go down. So that's why local citizens wanted to get rid of it because their houses and their buildings was actually losing property value. Mm. Okay, that's enough for the Wikipedia article. Interesting. I did not know that the stop and frisk was based on a Supreme Court case in 1968 called Terry versus Ohio. And the nickname of the stop and frisk program is called Terry Stops. You know, there's there's a version of stop and frisk all across the country. And after looking at those two comedians, Abba and Peach on YouTube, there's a stop and frisk also in Canada. And it seems to be come from this 1968 case in the Supreme Court, Terry v. Ohio. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to re- I'm going to take a quick uh, five minute break and I'm going to close off the show by reading Terry V. Ohio. OK, be back in a sec. 
Hey. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for the wait. Yeah, this is Jeffrey Frazier from Whack Wall Street Chronicles, and we're back at it again. So, early I was talking about stop and frisk, and as I was reading the information of Wikipedia.com, I find out that the theory on stop and frisk policing was actually created by a Supreme Court case all the way back in 1968 called Terry v. Ohio. And the nickname of the stop and frisk policy is called the Terry Stops. Hmm. So we're going to go over what this court case is. All right. The United States Supreme Court made an important ruling on the use of stop and frisk in the 1968 case. Terry v. Ohio. Hence why the stops are also referred to the Terry stops. While frisks were arguably legal until then, a police officer could be searched only with someone who has been arrested unless the search warrant has been obtained. In the cases of Terry v. Ohio, Sydney v. New York, and Peters v. New York, the Supreme Court granted limited approval in 1968 to the frisks conducted by officers lacking probable cause for an arrest in order to search for weapons if the officer believes the subject to be dangerous. The court's decision, suspicion of danger to an officer grounds for a reasonable search. In the early 1980s, if a police officer had reasonable suspicion of possible crime, he or she had the authority to stop someone and ask questions. If, based on the subject's answers, the suspicious letter did not escalate to probable cause for an arrest, the person would be released immediately. That was only a stop in question. The first part of the equation did not come into play except on two cases. If the possession of a weapon was suspected or reasonable suspicion of a possible crime escalated to probable cause for to an arrest for an actual crime based on the facts after the initial stop in question. That all changed in the 1990s when Copstat, I heard a Copstat before. Copstat was developed under the police commissioner William Bratton. High-ranking police officials widely incorporated the stop, question, and frisk. Use of stop and frisk is also associated with broken windows policing. Yeah, I read this before. So, let's look over the Terry v. Ohio case. Terry v. versus Ohio. 392 U.S. 1. Was a landmark decision of the Supreme Court of the United States in which the court ruled that the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on reasonable searches and seizures is not violated when a police officer stops a suspect on the street, frisk him or her without probable cause to arrest. If a police officer has reasonable suspicion, the, the person has committed, is committing or is about about to commit a crime that has a reasonable belief that the person may be armed and potentially dangerous. Okay. For their own protection, after a person has been stopped, police may perform a quick surface search of the person's outer clothing for weapons. If they have reasonable suspicion that the person stopped is armed, 
This reasonable suspicion must be based on specific and articulable facts and not merely upon an officer's hunch. This permitted police action has subsequently been referred to in short as a stop and frisk or simply a Terry frisk. The Terry standard was later extended to temporary detentions of persons and vehicles known as traffic stops or the Terry stop for a summary of subsequent Juden's prudence. The rationale bet- behind the Supreme Court's decision revolves around the understanding that, as the opinion notes, the exclusionary rule has its limitations. The meaning of the rule is to protect persons from unreasonable searches and seizures aimed at gathering evidence, not searches and seizures for other purposes like prevention of crime or personal protection of police officers. The stop and frisk practice, which comprises stopping a person's suspected involvement in a crime, briefly searching for their clothing for weapons and questioning them, all without requiring their consent and without enough grounds to arrest them, has long been routinely employed by all major American police forces. Stop and frisk was traditionally viewed as low visibility police procedures and prior to 1960 was largely ignored by commentators and dealt with ambiguously by most courts. However, in the early 1960s, seven major changes in American criminal law raised the issue as importance. First, in 1961, the Supreme Court ruled in Map v. Ohio that the exclusionary rule applied to the U.S. states as well as the federal government. Then, in 1966, the Supreme Court ruled in Miranda v. Arizona that the Fifth Amendment requires courts to exclude confessions that the law enforcement obtains without first giving certain specific legal warnings. The stop-and-frisk practice became a popular topic in law reviews, and a number of prominent articles were written on the subject. Several cases forced state Supreme Courts to address practice more directly, such as Supreme Court of California's 1968-1963 decision in People v. Mickelson. Finally, in 1968, the U.S. Supreme Court addressed you the issue in Terry. The Terry case involved an incident that took place on October 31st, 1963 in Cleveland, Ohio. That's in Halloween. A local policeman named Martin McFadden was on duty in the downtown Cleveland and noticed that two men standing on the street corner. He watched one of them, John W. Terry, walk down the street, stop in front of a certain store, look through his window, then briefly continue on before turning around and returning to where he started, stopping on his way back to look in the store window again. Then the other man, Richard Clinton, did the same thing. McFadden watched the pair repeat this routine about a dozen times, then the third man joined him, and the three walk up the street together towards the store. The McFadden suspected that the men were casing in the store in preparation for robbing it. So he followed them and confronted them. He asked the men's names and gave noncommittal mumbling answers. McFadden then grabbed the two men, spun them around, and patted down the exterior clothing and discovered that they both had pistols in their pot jacket pockets. 
after discovering the pistols, McFadden arrested Terry and Clinton, and they were both charged with illegally carrying concealed weapons. At trial, Terry's lawyer made a motion to suppress the evidence of the discovered pistol, arguing that the fist by which McFadden had discovered it was in violation of the Fourth Amendment, and therefore that the judge should be exclude the pistol from evidence per the exclusionary rule. The trial judge denied his motion on the basis that stop and frisk was generally presumed legal and Terry was convicted. He appealed to the Ohio District Courts of Appeals, which affirmed his conviction. Then he appealed to the Supreme Court of Ohio, which dismissed his appeal. Then he appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which agreed to hear his case and granted Cetirati. On June 10th, 1968, the Supreme Court issued an 8-1 decision against Terry that upheld the constitutionality of the stop and frisk procedure as long as the police officer performing it has a reasonable suspicion that the target person is about to commit a crime and has committed a crime or is committed a crime and may be armed and presently dangerous. Hmm. So that's why the NYPD lost the stop and frisk case, because according to this decision, you need to have reasonable decision, reasonable suspicion. And the New York City Police Department was just stopping people for no reason at all. I think hmm, I think the Supreme Court decision is wrong, but. I understand. Okay. Opinion of the court. A justice formed a majority and joined the opinion written by Chief Justice Earl Warren. Hmm. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stop this show right here. I believe there's enough information in need uh, on the basis of stop and frisk. Now, a couple of things. Again, please go to my Instagram Black Kage 840. My Instagram is Black Kage 840. Please also go to my YouTube channel, which is Pain 308 TV. That's Pain 308 TV. I need you to subscribe. I have 50 subscribers and I would like to get it over 100 so I can post the website on the internet. Um, also, if you're looking to promote a business, Please hit me on my email. My name is Jeffrey Frazier, 55 at gmail.com. That's Jeffrey Frazier at 55 at gmail.com. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-F-R-A-Z-I-E-R at gmail.com. Oh, if you go to my Instagram on my bios, it has my Twitter, it has my Twitch, and it has my Facebook page. Please look for this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, and Google Play. Thank you very much, and I want you to enjoy your day. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about um, modern slavery. Thank you very much, and enjoy your night. Bye-bye.